It's about creating this new sense of place, this new sense of innovation, introducing, you know, people to, to place, to people, to a new product type, to a new way of living, you know, all this kind of stuff. So making that introduction. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we're exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today we're going to take a more literal interpretation of what is meant by what people are building in Cleveland (laughs) by talking about literal physical buildings and the innovation and entrepreneurial story behind them. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Whalen about Intro. Intro is the nine-story construction complex currently undergoing development adjacent to the Westside Market on the corner of West 25th and Lorraine. Dan is the Vice President of Design and Development at Harbor Bay and has spearheaded Intro's development from inception to where it now stands en route to be one of the first and tallest mass timber buildings in the entire country. We cover a lot in this conversation, from the benefits and prospects for wood construction as a ecologically, structurally, and cost-superior construction material to steel and concrete, to the implications of intro to the West Side market, uh, and ultimately the vision for intro and its completion. I'm very excited to spread the word here about the scale and significance of the innovation that is happening right here in Ohio City. So please enjoy Dan and my conversation. So like we were talking about before we turned on record here, I've lived in Ohio City closing in on four years now, just south of Lorraine by St. Ignatius. And over that time, just walking around the neighborhood, I've seen a lot of changes, but nothing struck me quite like the demolition of that dual purpose surface parking lot, mini shopping center that occupied the space adjacent to the West Side Market. And I've been super interested since then in understanding what we would see in its place going forward. And so I've been following along as information has been made available. But I think like many Ohio City dwellers have been super excited to learn more about this development, which is why I've really been looking forward to having this conversation with you. So really appreciate you coming on, Dan. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm glad people are interested in it. Obviously, the scale of it and the location of it are pretty high uh, profile and you know, from from there, there's a whole lot of depth to the story, how it happened and how it continues to go forward and sort of what it'll mean for the city of Cleveland and, uh, you know, the broader region. Yeah, yeah. I am excited to to hear and learn as well. And I, I'd love to do that. But but just before we dive into the specifics of the project and the history and, and all that, I'd love if you could just you know, tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your personal background and how you ultimately, you know, came to, to spearhead this project. Yeah. Well, I'm a Cleveland guy, so born and raised on the east side in Willoughby. Went to Willoughby South High School. I went to Case Western Reserve. Uh, a lot of people locally know me because of my football career, but after school, ended up going away for a couple of years, coming back, went to grad school. And at that point in time, I was working for Snavely Group, who built some projects you know, down the street. They built a quarter most recently and worked on some other stuff. But that was kind of my first foray into real estate. And at the time, that was 2012, 2013, we had gone after the Market Plaza site and tried to purchase it with the plan to develop. And there were some studies done locally and they never materialized with, with Snavely. So I went to Chicago, took a job there, actually worked for Scott Wolstein at Starwood for about four years. And in the meantime, I had been still kind of keeping my eye on Market Plaza, right? And I had been talking to the guys at Ohio City Incorporated. I've been talking to the owners. I was rubbing elbows with people in the neighborhood. And so uh, it was really my side hustle to try to make something happen there. And through all the discussions, you know, I was a, what, a 26, 27 year old kid. And everyone that I talked to, Tom McNair and, and you know, the councilman, and they all kind of looked at me like, how are you going to make something <laughs> happen on this site? Right. And, uh, you know, the price tag and the discussions with the owner and all that kind of stuff. But I just stayed on it and just kind of hustled my way through. And a lot of things happened in the background, right place, right time with our group at Harbor Bay. and just uh, the trajectory of my personal career, but eventually got the owners of that site, who was uh, Daryl Young and his brothers, who built the center in 1989, I believe, and they don't it ever since. And legacy was super important to them. And like, not just what you know, their legacy is, but what happens to the property after they let go of it? And, and what does it become? And how does it help the neighborhood? They, they genuinely cared about that stuff. So for us, I had a plan and, and a vision and like was able to describe what, what I wanted to do. At the time, none of that included timber, but it did certainly include 
you know, this mixed use, large scale, dense transit oriented project that was a little bit bigger and far reaching than what other people had proposed over the years. And so got there real comfortable and we made the deal and now it's snowballed into what it is today. <laughs> you say made the deal like it was a, a piece of cake. <laughs> um. <laughs> Not at all. Not a piece of cake, but, you know, a long time of kind of rolling up the sleeves and, and very slowly getting people comfortable that, you know, they're not trying to screw them over because that's that's always the thing. People got to like you to make a deal. It's not all always about money, right? Money's important and there's economics to every side, but it's also like you got to want to work with the person. You got to want to deal with that person, sit across the table and, and work in good faith. So I think there was just a lot of time spent in building a true relationship with with the Young family, as well as, you know, the, the Ohio City Incorporated group. And, and then the, at the end of the day, also the neighborhood block club. So that's where like all the heavy lifting went in. So that by the time we got to the finish line, it was not, not a whole lot of, uh, of stress. <laughs> yeah. So as you went about talking with these different stakeholders and, and, and building consensus and ultimately to the point where you can proceed and, and get this green light, what, what was the vision you were painting for this development? And I think it was mostly around playing to Ohio City's strengths, right? Ohio City already is an amazing place with with really great bones and it's it's got history, it's got authenticity. Obviously, the most historic piece of it is the West Side Market right across the street. It's an amazing building, both architecturally, what it stands for, kind of what it is as an operating asset for the city and, and for all the jobs and all the individual unique small businesses that operate within it. And the way it connects the fabric of, of the neighborhood and the larger region and the tourist uh, attraction that it provides. So all of that, plus the fact that you have this ongoing investment with you know, improvements to, to bike infrastructure and the towpath trail and the red line greenway and continued you know, businesses that, that want to be in Ohio City. And the fact that you have access to downtown and the lake and you know the river and Tremont and Gordon Square, all within a short, you know, five minute walk or 10 minute bike ride in some instances, those are all amazing selling points, right? And the fact that you're also in a neighborhood as opposed to, you know, being downtown, you still have access to downtown, you have all the things that you want to be able to do within a short, short distance, but you also get to feel like you're part of a neighborhood and part of a, you know, a community. And so all that really plays into sort of what the vision for the project became. And it was density right at the transit oriented corner you've got a train line that connects you one stop into tower city right and that's that stop will soon be a half a block from sherwin williams new headquarters you have all the other companies that, that house downtown and right now it's a little bit of a weird time right because nobody's necessarily going to work at the scale they were before but that'll, that'll change and that'll get back to normal hopefully sometime soon and then in the other direction you've got the airport at a 15 minute train ride You've got nine bus routes that converge at the corner. You have Metro that provides 7,000 jobs. Their main campus that's going to, undergoing a $2 billion renovation right now. So all this stuff kind of come together. It's like, well, why is there nowhere to live at this corner, right? Why is it still a 1989 strip center with a slew of tenants that, you know, one could argue kind of have, have gone by the wayside and they're no longer relevant. So we just started to materialize and literally get on the whiteboard and, throw ideas. And the first idea we had was how do we make the project different than anything that exists in Cleveland? And that's where we started to, to get into the timber. And you know, we always wanted to do density. We always wanted to, to make it a sizable project for the number of units and the number of apartments that we could provide. And then obviously add dynamic retail too, because Ohio City has a lot of great stuff, but it also has some things that, it, that it's lacking, right? It's, it's got a need for, for other sorts of retail and destination oriented stuff. Uh, services and daily needs type of things that are still void in the neighborhood. So that all kind of comes together and, and pieces into like at least the program. And then the way the timber story evolved was something else. But that's that's kind of the vision for for the project and why you know this corner really demanded a high profile building and with the, with a mix of uses. Yeah, no, it's the the vision is clear. I, I love it personally. Before we dive into the timber story, which I definitely want to explore in depth. I'm curious, just just some like hard facts about the, the site and development. Like what is the estimated timeline? How many people from a density perspective uh, do, you, do you foresee in this, in this place? Just, just those kinds of 
ideas. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you've been by the site recently, which I know you have, um, you live in the neighborhood, it's under full swing, you know, deep into construction. We're probably about four stories up right now. Um, the timber is on site. It's being erected. So optimistic that the schedule is, is going to land where we think it will. And right now we're slated to kind of be wrapping up construction at this time next year. So right around into January, early February, which seems like a long way to go because uh, as you drive by, it's still very much a building structure that's only halfway up, but the timber will start to go really fast. We'll be chasing it with with windows and walls, you know, very, very soon. So that's like kind of the estimated timeline. We've already got some retail deals working that are also, you know, what I want to do is I want to open our retail space with retailers in it as opposed to finish the building, have the apartments leased or, or, you know, open, but then we're still half empty with retail. So we're on a really good trajectory to make that happen as well. I think we have 35,000 square feet of retail, give or take, and we are either signed leases or working on leases for over half of it. And then a couple early discussions, which all things considered during this whole COVID experience, I think that's, that's a pretty good sign. I think we're going to come out of this all right. And Ohio City, especially on the south side of Lorraine here, is going to have a whole new bunch of retailers and, and restaurants to uh, supplement what's there. Uh, there's a bit of a changing of guard happening at that end of the street if you've been around there lately, but uh, I think it's going to be good. I think refresh is, is not, not a bad thing. As for the rest of the building, we've got 300 apartments and they're a mix of studios, one bedrooms and two bedrooms. And then there is a penthouse floor that has a little bit more extravagant, larger floor plans that that have a a whole nother level of sort of unit amenities and technology and and features that that are above and beyond what the standard units have. And then something I'm really excited about is our top floor. The ninth floor has a full-fledged top of the line state-of-the-art event venue. And that's completely separate sort of from the residential experience. So it's not necessarily a common area. That's that's a business that we're going to operate up there, which had, you know, can accommodate weddings of up to 400 people, other events that are like standing room cocktail type of events of, of up to a thousand. It's got a wraparound terrace that's got unobstructed skyline views right at the level of the clock tower at the Westside Market. So it's pretty stunning. The defining features of that space are heavily geared towards the timber and the the trusses that run across the ceiling is is something that people are just going to be like awestruck by, I hope. So really excited about that. And um, that kind of rounds out the program. We do have parking. You know, I failed to mention that, but kind of on purpose. Um, you know, there's there's underground covered secured parking, which is obviously an asset in the city of Cleveland, but at the same time being such a heavily transit oriented site in a neighborhood where you can pretty much accomplish everything you want on foot. I think we have a fair bit of, of people that that utilize the neighborhood assets from a transit standpoint to get around. Yeah, I was going to ask about parking and uh, the reception and feedback you've been getting on that. It's it's definitely a hot topic, I think, uh, for for local developments of of any kind considerations for parking. But no, I think the in the transition to more density and the the access to public transit that that is right there. I hope that that more people are going to go that route. I really do. I mean, I think I think it's a bit of a learning curve that'll happen sort of organically because it's like if you don't live near transit, you're less inclined to take it or utilize it or if you don't work near it. Right. So the fact that now we can provide a bunch of housing units right on transit station, essentially, and between the retailers and restaurants, a bunch of jobs, too, for people that get to work using the bus or, or the train. I, I think what will happen is you may not use the train day one living in an apartment, but maybe a couple of months in, you're like, yeah, you'll, let me try the train to the airport. Let me try the, taking the train over to the Cleveland Clinic. And then you're like, wow, this is really easy. And it's you know, two bucks each way. And it gets me there on a very precise time frame. Like this is easy. And I can answer emails and I can take phone calls and do that stuff that I normally maybe couldn't be as efficient with, with our driving. So that's what I think will happen. And I, I think people, if they give it a shot, will really start to see the advantages of, of public transit especially the fact that it's right there at your front door, you know, less than hundred feet from, from the building. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's uh, let's talk about wood. <laughs> I know that it is the foundation literally of what this building is ultimately going to be. I've just been very personally interested in this topic. You know, it's one of the oldest building materials around and, and all of a sudden in the past few years, we're seeing a bit of a resurgence of it and application in large industrial construction, skyscrapers, apartment buildings, 
structures of this size and scale. And I am very curious to understand why would and where did that decision come from? And we can definitely dive a little deeper from there. Yeah, it's a good question. And again, it sort of happened by accident. We were finishing up a project in Minneapolis and right down the street, Heinz, who's another large developer, they were finishing themselves a timber office building that they had just kind of dreamt up. And it was one of the first ones in the country. So we wandered down the street. And one day when we were in Minneapolis, we literally broke in the back door, kind of someone was walking out and we, we kind of propped our foot in and we started walking around. And it was amazing. It was, a, it was such a unique environment that they created. And it was just strictly because of the building material and because of the way that the timber was exposed. And as opposed to it being, you know, this old 1900s turn of the century type of thing that was very rustic and industrial. It was the opposite of that. It was very modern and sleek and contemporary and clean and bright. And so it was like, that's new, that's different. And so, as I mentioned, the kind of the center of our idea web when we were coming up with what the project was actually going to be was differentiation, right? Because you see a lot of stuff in Cleveland that's very much the same. And unfortunately, one of the challenges in Cleveland is cost to build is very expensive and rents. You know, when you look at them on a national basis, are are very inexpensive. And so those two things make up for a misalignment when it comes to development and being able to spend extra money on things that people recognize as as quality or or as design aesthetic, things like that. So usually the first thing to get chopped is the, the stuff that makes a building just more aesthetically pleasing, I guess, right? And so we had the opportunity to start exploring and, and understanding timber. And we went to Austria. We went to Northern Canada. Like I flew on the single engine prop plane in the middle of a snowstorm up to basically the Arctic <laughs> Circle to go see this logging factory that then was being used to create panels and beams out of, you know, of mass timber. And so we kind of went to all ends of the earth to really learn about the project, literally. And came back and we're like, we have to do this. We have to try to make this happen. And there was challenges, right? With logistics and how are we going to get materials here? And with cost uh, issues that I mentioned previously, it was like, all right, we'll get to really, really try hard to, to make this happen and dig in and do our, our research and understand how to, how to make it feasible. And, and we did, we, we found great partners. We found outstanding engineers who had experience, you know, the guys erecting the building, specifically the timber, timber portion they built the tallest one in the country. And so their, their crew is in here from Vancouver and they've done this before. This isn't their first rodeo and they're training Cleveland carpenters to do the same thing. And they're working with our general contractor and our other consultants to, to really teach and get everybody acclimated. So, you know, all that said, it was kind of, we stumbled upon this project down the street from Mars in Minneapolis. And that was kind of the thing that set the tone and really tipped us into going into the deep end and, and beginning to explore and research and understand and eventually become experts on the topic ourselves. Yeah, it's an amazing exploratory story there. Where is the, the wood ultimately coming from now? So I mentioned I went to Austria. So we, with the project of the size and scale that we have, there were actually only a few companies in the world that could produce what we needed to, to produce and deliver it without really limiting their utilization and capacity for other projects, right? We narrowed it down to four companies. None of them were in the United States. They were either Canadian, Italian, or um, in this case, Austrian. When we really touched and felt the product and then went to see their facilities, it was a no-brainer. So Binderholtz is the company that's supplying our, our timber. They're, they're based in Flugen, Austria, which is um, not too far from uh, some of the larger cities that people have heard of there. You know, So the differentiating thing about their product, even from other mass timber, is that the European spruce and, and the fur that, that comes from the trees there is an entirely different color and it's just brighter and whiter and cleaner than some of the wood that you'll see come from North American forests. So even that provides even another level of sort of uniqueness to our project. And you know, if you drive by or walk by, you'll see how just stunning the, the wood is when it's in its raw form. So that's where the wood's coming from and that's why it's coming from so far away. It's just because it's a, a pure supply demand thing. And until there's more uh, companies in North America that are able to, to get into the mass timber game, it's going to unfortunately be that way for a while. But I, I, I think we've established a really great relationship with Binderholtz, and I think we plan on using them for the foreseeable future. Among everybody we talked to and interviewed, 
they were the most sustainable in terms of their practices. There's not a single ounce of waste that comes out of their factory. In fact, all the shavings and pellets and, and uh, waste that, that happens in the process of creating timber is all reutilized to fuel the schools in their towns, the post office, the city hall, all that stuff. So they basically have this entire community in the valley between these mountain ranges in Austria that are kind of self-sufficient and fully reliant on uh, the process that they've built. So it, it's really, really good in terms of its carbon footprint. And we felt like that was a major important story, piece of the story to uh, to incorporate. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely want to dive deeper on the the benefits of mass timber construction, but I do want to address kind of the what I imagine is the purple elephant criticism or fear that you're probably sick of hearing at this point, but there's an old fable I remember from childhood is like the three three pigs and the wolf and you know you build your house out of straw and or out of wood and you know the, the wolf's gonna blow it down you build it out of bricks it's you know it's gonna stand the test of time <laughs> and then with that you know there's the concerns of of fire and wood and I know it's far more nuanced than that and I, I kind of want to dive a bit into the nuance but because you know most of these cities have some history of some unprecedented historical mass fire that I think kind of planted probably seeds of of doubt for wood buildings much in the way that like Chernobyl has made it very hard for us to come to, you know, some kind of comfort with nuclear power. And so we abandon wood for steel and, and concrete and our short-term reversion has maybe gone too far uh, and and maybe the pendulum is swinging back. But I, I would love to hear, you know, what what is the reality of the risks or not of wood construction? It's a question we come across almost every day, right? With from someone that we're teaching or, or someone that's learning about it. And honestly, there were questions we had when we start, started getting into the, the research and understanding of the product. So, you know, those, those old, you know, the Chicago fire and the fires that have happened in certain cities across the country in the olden times, it's like, it's easy to cling to those as like the examples, but you know, those are once in a generation type of events. And yeah, there's fires in wood buildings. And uh, at the same time, you know, there's lots of four-story wooden buildings that get built around Cleveland and around tons of major cities across the country every day, right? Problem is when you start going up taller than that, that's when you have to use concrete and have to use steel structurally more than anything, right? It's not so much that that the fire concerns are, are a major issue. It was, well, two by fours can't support that height of a building beyond four or five stories. So it was just like default, you know, you had to go, go use other materials. But as you start digging in and start really watching all of the research and testing and studies that have gone into the mass timber construction industry and, and development of the product itself and the engineering, it performs light years better than those other materials in almost every instance, in, in earthquakes, in fires, in explosions, in you name it, right? Like it's not just resilient, but I don't know if you ever heard the book Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb, but like it's not just, oh, it can rebound when the events that of, of it, it, it's actually stronger than it's even remotely kind of crossing people's minds. So I think the, the beautiful thing is we have the opportunity to educate. We have the opportunity to walk people through. We have the opportunity to teach people and show physical data that's been compiled over the last five, 10 years in support of the product. And it really does. It, it acts completely different than what your mind might tell you a wood, you know, wooden building would do in the event of a fire or a catastrophic event, right? So it's something that most people just like, we have a discussion, they, they ask the question because it's like, hey, they, they gotta ask the question and then they, they kind of get on board. But I don't, I don't have too many people like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine living in a, a nine-story timber building. I mean, there's there's tall wood buildings in other parts of the world that have been standing for many, many years. I mean, there's, there's buildings in China made out of wood that are multiple hundred feet tall that have been there for almost a thousand years. And so for every anecdote about a fire that burned down a city, there's, there's, someone, there's one like that to kind of offset it. And, you know, these are not small pieces of wood. They're not two by fours, 16 inches on center. They're, you know, two foot by two foot pieces of wood that have been compiled using smaller pieces and glued together and hydraulically pressed and, and form these large columns and beams and, and floor plates, right? So the floors themselves are made out of that product as well. And in the event of a fire, they're designed to, to develop a char layer 
And that char layer basically insulates the log and protects it and eventually will fizzle out. And so the part that does burn is the non-structural portion and it burns at a very precise rate, which one of the things that we, we had on our agenda to talk about was like discussion with the building department, fire department. Well, when mm-hmm. a firefighter goes into a steel building, he or she has no idea how long they have until that steel gives out, right? Same for concrete. Like the concrete gets too hot, it'll explode and it'll do so spontaneously. Steel, you don't know how hot it is at any given point of fire. And the hotter it gets, the more likely it is to, to fail structurally and melt. Well, wood burns at a very precise rate. They know exactly to the eighth of an inch how much of that log or how much of that beam or column is going to burn based on when the fire started and over what time period. So this is all stuff that we have a book, you know, it's like 1,200 pages <laughs> thick to, to support. And that stuff all got the uh, building and fire department on board with us going to what we're doing. So um, you're going to see more and more projects popping up around the country because the engineering and the science is in a much faster pace than the building code and than the rules and regulations that are still based off of things that occurred in 1850, right? So that's my long-winded <laughs> description <laughs> of sort of the whole conversation about structure and, and performance in, uh, in fire. So I'm excited to, uh, honestly, for people to get a look and, and really start to understand it. And I think people will. I think they'll, they'll do the research on their own, like just, hey, I'm, I'm curious, how does this work, right? Yeah, no, it seems really exciting just as someone interested in the topic and who is also interested in the ecological considerations of it. But you have what seems to me is like this renewable, low carbon, like prefabricated resource that that like obviously <laughs> to everything that you just explained can can do the job and probably better than some of these materials we've been using. And it's, it's very exciting. It really is. And, and, you know, another question we get in, in- I guess a challenge that we get is, well, how is it better for the environment if you're cutting down trees to make these buildings? Well, the, the amount of wood that is produced to use to create our building is grown in, in North American forests every 12 seconds, right? So like when you put that in context, trees keep growing. They're not hard, you know, they're harvested sustainably. And obviously a big portion of that is heavily reliant upon how, how sustainably the forests are managed, right? You can't go chopping down everything because then you're going to run out of resources and trees don't grow back overnight. You know, it's important to note that we're not cutting down 80 year old trees that have, you know, lived these long, amazing lives and grown to 300 feet tall. It's like, these are mostly young growth forests and they're trees that are eight to 10 years old and they're, they're thin and they're, they're easily reharvested and replanted. And, and that's the business plan. Cause obviously if you were to cut down all the forests, companies doing this would, would run out of work and run out of economic benefit too. So there, there's a, a big, deep chain of, of the way that this all works. And, you know, another reason we went to Binderholz is just because they're out in front of it. They're, they're ensuring that every step of their process is sustainable, um, renewable. You know, you met, you did mention renewability, like what is the only renewable construction product out there, right? Like you can't, like concrete doesn't grow on trees, you know, it's like, <laughs> Steel has to be produced. The carbon footprint of actually producing those materials is insane, right? You talk about the amount of construction traffic on site. Well, if you had watched the project kind of happen during the concrete phase of the parking garage and whatnot, there's a ton of trucks, a ton of pumping, a ton of all this kind of different, what I'll call pollutants, right? That, that, that happen, whether it's through the truck traffic or whether it's through the actual process of pouring and making concrete versus wood. It all comes in on, you know, far less number of trucks and it's lifted up with a crane put into place by two guys with a, a wrench and they move on to the next one. So it's, it's a lot less intrusive. It's a lot less disruptive construction process. And I think just front to back uh, for the whole entire life cycle of the building from the time it's a tree harvested in the woods to the time that, you know, the building finishes out its useful life 100 years from now, the, the carbon footprint reduction will be so enormous. And so that's really what we're trying to forward. That's why you know the building is going to be a case study. It's going to be a place that people fly in to Cleveland to to look at, to understand. We already have people through the construction process that have been visiting during COVID, getting on planes, coming to see because they're really wanting to get involved and try to figure out how to grow it and, and do it themselves. So that's one thing I don't think people both regular old citizens of the city as well as the government and the people that we worked with to to get this off the ground, I don't think everybody recognizes just how 
how big of a deal it is and how different it is and how special, you know, and yeah, I'm the developer of the building, but uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. And uh, to be able to do our first timber building as a company in my hometown at arguably its most high profile corner. I mean, kind of a fairy tale, right? I'm excited to see it all come together. Yeah, me too. Me too. One thing I, I'm, I would love to get your take on, you know, you mentioned the lifespan of, of a building, if you will, you know, around a hundred years, century, you know, potentially. What I've been curious about is, especially for a project like this, is how, how you think about and ensure that the infrastructure will be able to adapt to the rate of change of new technology and, and kind of stand the test of time. You know, when, when you think about, I don't know, 2120, right? Like literally a hundred years from now, and, and this thing is an elder building. How, how do you think about, you know, the, the longevity of a project like this and, and the impact that it could have and your vision for that? Yeah, I mean, such a good question. I mean, right across the street, you have one of the most historic buildings in, in the city, right? And it's been there over 100 years. It's been, it was built in you know, 1912. Before that, I don't know how much history you know about the West Side Market. It was across the street in a smaller format. And before that, really, there was like the Central Market down kind of where progressive field, you know, kind of stands. And so there's just this history of these historic buildings. And we wanted to make a building that, again, in 50 years, people are going to look back and go, that's historic as well, in a completely different way, in a completely different timeline, what it symbolized at the time it was built. So that was that was another kind of piece of the pie as to why we did timber, right? And I really do believe that because our project is is so large, because of its, you know, its height and scale in terms of there's nothing, there's not been a building in the United States at all, uh, in, in even Canada, who's way out ahead of us on this uh, cross-laminated timber trajectory. Like, there hasn't been a building as big as Intro. Like, there just isn't. And so it won't be the tallest building for probably more than a few months. There's, there's a building going up in Milwaukee that is going to be 25 stories of timber. And so, you know, we'll, we'll soon be eclipsed by that. But the, never, the goal is never to be the tallest. The goal is just to make a statement. And the goal is to... to innovate and do something, you know, groundbreaking and, and different and unique and do it in Cleveland, right? Like in a Rust Belt city that has this narrative and this notion that like, it's, it's the kind of little sister to all these other great cities. And then just has this, you know, 50 years of, of population decline and yada, yada. Like, it was like, let's do something that people can rally, rally behind. And then you throw in COVID that just kind of the week we break ground COVID, you know, the world shuts down. It's like, I think more symbolically and more like what the project stands for in that regard is, is I think what I'm going to end up looking back and be proudest about when, when it's all said and done. It's the thing that, again, when I'm walking my kids down Ohio City, 25th Street in 25 years or whatever it may be, right? Say, yeah, well, here's, what, here's why that building is just as historic as the one across the street in its own way. That's, that's kind of like, again, a defining feature. It's more than just a regular old apartment building, you know, those are a dime a dozen. They get built every day, but this has got a lot more pieces, parts to it that, that tell a, a pretty sweet story. Yeah. So speaking of the proverbial building across the street, I would like to talk about the, the West side market for a sec as you know, it is, it is kind <laughs> of, I started think. on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'll just, I'll just let you run just West side market. Well, you know, I've become fully ingrained with with relationships there over the past three or four years, specifically as our project's gotten rolling. But, you know, you have many vendors who have had the keys passed down from their parents and their parents' parents. And, you know, they're running the stand that that their uncle started in 1940, right? Like that exists and that exists in, in large quantities. You know, you also have a new contingent of, of people that have started businesses and have have taken a chance at launching in the West Side Market and doing something from the ground up within this this context, and then you have the notion that the city is the operator owner of the building and the processes and the systems and you know the maintenance and all this other stuff that takes place. All of those things coming together create a lot of challenges. And again, I'm an outsider looking in, right? But at the same time, I have a brain. I can look. I can I can think. I can take notes and observe. And I see a lot of small little tweaks that can be made at very cost effective to, to, you know, very little capital intensive adjustments and they're not being made. And you have the city at fault big time, wholeheartedly just ne neglecting it, right? You walk by the market on a given Wednesday, 
10 o'clock in the morning. Most times you can't tell if it's open or closed. You don't know. It's not lit. The doors are, you know, I don't know how old. They've got chain link, you know, metal in, in the glass. They've got all kinds of things that really almost inhibit you from, from being able to come inside. If you, if you don't know that the market's open on Wednesdays and you're more than likely, you know, not going to, going to notice that by looking at it right standing in front of the building. So little things like that, like the building doesn't have adequate heating or cooling in the middle of summer, it gets 95 degrees. There's no air conditioning in that building. All right. And the infrastructure is not updated and the plumbing and you have challenges with that, right? And the city is responsible for all kinds of things like that. And they really truly don't understand how to operate that business, nor really do they have the skill set to to try. And so um, there's a stubbornness that's been taking place politically to to let go of the operation of, of the market, right? Not the ownership. They own the building. The city's going to own the building probably to eternity, but the operation and, and the, the caretaking and the focus and the sense of urgency, right? That's something, those four things are, are the city will never have, no matter who you put in and, and who's got control. So that's a problem, right? And then you have vendors that quite frankly, they're all on different pages and you have some that believe one thing and some that believe another. And there's a really big fear of change and evolution there for the vendors that have been around a long time. And that goes down to what must, what the stands look like. It goes down to what other types of vendors should be allowed in and shouldn't be, what types of services are going to be provided in the market, what hours they're going to operate. Like some people still want to have the hours they had in 1950 when by and large women were at home and doing the shopping during the day while kids were at school and the husbands were at work. The world doesn't work that way anymore, right? There's needs, there's changes. There needs to be different approaches. And when you have a, a building that's got a hundred plus unique vendors in it, they really got to all be moving the same direction. There's got to be a, a, a process. There's got to be a means and methods to get, you know, buy-in and consensus. And then, you know, debate, figure it out. And then unfortunately, if not everybody goes the same way, you, okay, well, we vote, you go, right? That's, that's unfortunately how it has to go. But you have people that won't open on Wednesday at 9 a.m. because they don't do any business between 9 and 12. And so you go into the market on a day it's open and half the vendors might not be doing anything, right? They might be dark. And so no one is completely, like, I think there's multiple parties at fault and there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to tackle. I have like this manifesto that I've been writing over the past couple of years of like just, I spend almost every day down there when I'm in town, right? Because I'm right across the street and I walk by and I walk through and I talk to the vendors that I know and I talk to the market operator and the manager and the city. It's like, there needs, needs to be effort. There needs to be energy and there needs to be a focus. And none of that currently exists. Just a lot of fighting and lack of aptitude, right? From the city's perspective, they just, they don't have what it takes. And that's not... It just needs to be put on the table because it's not an opinion. It's a fact. And so until there's a, a, tr- a change in how the market is operated and how it's funded, I, I think you're going to have a challenge. But you go back to one of the reasons that we chose to develop this corner. and It's because of the market. It's because this one of a kind public asset that's there. It's been there for 100 years. And you know, hopefully it's still there 100 years from now in terms of what it is and, and what it's again stands for. But uh its current trajectory, we're going to have some problems if, if uh, there's not uh, some sort of collaboration and um, change of direction. Yeah. What, one of the things that has just been a debated topic amongst myself and some other people living in this Ohio City neighborhood, is, as we've walked by the, the building and kind of theorized about the, the future prospects of it is, uh, you know, whether or not it would be a boon or, you know, competitive with the West Side market in any way. I'm I'm curious your your take on on that. You mean in terms of our project either competing or supplementing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, our business plan has always kind of harnessed the idea that we go as the market goes and not the other way around. And we want to support it. I want to put density right there so that there's 500 people living right across the street that realize just how easy it is to go buy a pound of meat on Tuesday and fruits and vegetables on Thursday, whatever. Those are bad examples because the market's closing <laughs> these days, but, <laughs> but you get my point. Like yeah, yeah. The, the fact that you can live across the street from a market that if you go look at the prices too, you can get meat in the West side market, super high quality butcher meat for less than like you're going to pay at almost any other store, sometimes less than, than it's sold wholesale to restaurants. And so 
not only that, but you can do it just by walking, you know, pressing the crosswalk button and going across the street, grabbing it and going back to your apartment. I mean, that's, that is such a major selling point, right? Yeah, it is. And there's no other building literally in the city of Cleveland that can say that, that can say, I can walk to the West Side Market within three minutes, get what I need five days a week or however many times you want to shop, whether you want to shop per meal or shop, you know, in bulk, you can do it. And look, anything you can't get there, Dave's is actually a pretty darn good option as well. I mean, the Dave's in Ohio City does, does a good job. I mean, there's not everything you can you can get there, but between those two, between Ohio City provisions, between the grocer grocery, like there's there's options across the board for for that sort of thing. And I think that opens up this wide net for us to the type of person that wants to rent at our project, right? I think there's a lot of older couples and even some families that is like, they just, they would want to rent. They'd want to live in the city of Cleveland and move back from the suburbs, but haven't found the building that checks enough boxes for them, right? Doesn't have access to green space. Doesn't have access to the grocery. It doesn't have a, a, a great nightlife scene. And at the same time, the things we mentioned at the beginning of the call, like the access to Tremont, to downtown, to Gordon Square, to the lake, to the river, to the airport. Like, again, it's, it's all these reasons why our, we felt the project demanded special attention, both, you know, from the scale and, and then eventually, you know, to the type and material and the construction that we chose. And it tells a really awesome story. So all of that supports more why the city of Cleveland and the vendors who operate inside the market need to get aligned and need to, to figure out how to find common ground. And, you know, we don't always need to open the door to consultants and committees and, and all these different people and then take 12 months to, to make plans, to make plans. It's like, no, it's like, it's eventually time to like, just do stuff. Right. It's time to like, stop putting pallets and trash cans out in the alley between the large building and the, the arcade portion, you know, put some picnic tables out there. Don't let your city electric trucks park in there. It's like, Take care of the space, you know, and encourage vendors to do the same and require them to do the same. Dude, I could go on and on. It's, it's such a, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, I have, I have a 15 page document that I've just been adding bullet points to over the past couple of years. And I've just been watching the discussions that take place both on Twitter and in the paper and on cleveland.com and, you know, in, in the political uh, arenas. And it's like, everyone wants to overcomplicate it. It's just, it needs attention. It needs some capital in injection to take care of basic things that is just deferred maintenance. And then it, it needs, you know, people to be okay with getting on the, the on board with, with evolving and getting into the 21st century, right? Because people's tastes have changed. People's shopping patterns have changed. I think you can only have so many stands in the market that sell raspberries and you can have so many stands that sell pork shoulder, right? Like I don't need 12 butchers. Like I just don't need that. And I don't think anybody else does. So eventually you're going to have to offer up the, the potential for other types of businesses to kind of get in there. But that's uh, just the tip <laughs> of the iceberg. For Yeah. I would, I would love to dive down that rabbit hole and indefinitely <laughs> uh, we are coming up on some kind of time here though. I, I do have a few more questions though. I'm curious what the public local perception and, and reception has been to to intro. Yeah. Well, the name intro too kind of came from just us figuring out what we wanted it to be about. Market Square was very identifiable. It's like when I tell you where the West said, you know, we're next to the West Side Market, everybody goes, oh yeah, okay, good. Got it. But intro was really about this idea of, you know, if you go to the website, introcleveland.com, which we kind of set up as a landing page for people to check out when, you know, just to get interested, get acclimated. Eventually that'll have floor plans and whatnot as, as we get closer to being ready to do so. But, um, it tells you what, like, what the name is all about. Like, what is in the name? It's about creating this new sense of place, this new sense of innovation, introducing, you know, people to, to place, to people, to a new product type, to a new way of living, you know, all this kind of stuff. So making that introduction and talking about that and, and doing so with the block clubs and the community groups that we had to, to actually get on board with ahead of time before the project was actually able to push forward. I was expecting there to be a lot of, community pushback just because it's scale. It's a large project and it's, it's different, right? And it's parking and it's congestion and it's this. And, but when it came down to it, we, we didn't come into the block club meetings in the community process to, uh, to basically shove stuff down people's throat. We listened, we asked questions, we 
we proposed what we wanted to do and we proposed, you know, it's kind of what you, it didn't really change much from what you see in the renderings and, and in the news. And the, the feedback was resoundingly positive. You know, sometimes you go into Ohio City block club meetings, depending on which block club you're dealing with, or <laughs> it's not unique to Ohio City. It, so I don't want to pick on it, but, and, and you'll get people, you know, saying, not in my backyard. We're not doing that here. I like the project, just not there. Move it, move it over, you know, one neighborhood away. But we didn't have any of that. We had, I think our block club, when they took a vote to, to allow the project to kind of go to the next phase of, of public approval, it was like 19 to one, right? And so I don't know who the one was and I don't know why, <laughs> right? But when you look at that and you look at the fact that we only had to go through that process once, where some developers in other parts of the city have to go through it five, six, seven times and their project changes and evolves and, you know, gets gets chopped in half, all these kind of things. Like we didn't have to do any of that because I think people realize that this corner demanded something that has been lacking for such a long time. And so, you know, that it's insulated being on a commercial district and all that kind of stuff. So we didn't really have to, the concerns of abutting next to any residential properties or anything like that. And we, we tried our hardest not to displace any of the businesses without having a plan on where to put them. And so you'll notice that when you drive around the immediate area and uh, five or six of the tenants that were in Market Plaza are relocated into brand new spaces that were previously empty, you know, down the street. So not only did we work really hard to, to keep those businesses operating, but we filled vacancies in other places that previously had no retail in them. And so that's only more beneficial for the neighborhood too. So, you know, Key Bank, Sherwin-Williams, um, H&R Block, Spectrum, those those businesses, uh, the nail salon that was in Market Plaza, they, they're all still up and running. They're just in the new new locations and that's a real success story too. So I think across the board, the community process has been resoundingly positive. Just people seeing the building go up too, they're just amazed at, wow, it's it's not what I expected. It's different, you know? And once we get to, to get past the construction phase and actually walk people into the finished product, uh, I think it's only going to be you know, exponentially further and better than, than the, the feedback we've already gotten. Yeah, I am very excited to see see it come together. So we spent a lot of time really geographically focused on this specific corner of Cleveland. Um, but one of the things that I like to ask everyone coming on is uh, to ultimately paint like a collective collage of people's favorite things throughout Cleveland. And you know maybe it is the West Side Market, and we'll stay <laughs> we'll stay honed in on this uh, this block. But um, I'm curious what your you know favorite aspects of Cleveland are, and and you know your your hidden gems. Oh man, I, I uh, there's so many. I mean, I. <laughs> I really think Cleveland has a lot of potential. You know, it's got a lot of great things. It's also got a lot of potential. Every time I bring people to Cleveland for the first time, they're kind of awestruck and, and they're like, well, this is surprisingly cool. And I'm like, well, maybe your expectations were too low to begin with, but it's it's like a, I'm batting a thousand on that, like bringing people to <laughs> Cleveland for the first time and, and they're like, man, this place is great. And so I think I think, you know, setting that aside, some of my favorite places around town. I mean, there's, there's such great little dive bars. There's, you know, places to, to, to go have a beer and hang out. Cleveland has such a great beer culture. I think it's restaurant scene needs to kind of catch up. Uh, I still, I still feel like we're living on the coattails of, of Michael Simon and Jonathan Sawyer and, you know, Zach Bruel and like those guys are outstanding, right? They, they set the tone for what the food scene is, but they also have been around like, you know, 20 years and a lot of their restaurants have, have been around almost as long. And so it's time to evolve. It's time to do some cool stuff. You know, Cleveland lags behind sometimes when, when you talk about development and hospitality and, and where it's going, not to say it's not disparaging, um, <laughs> but I love getting out on the towpath to go running. Uh, I mentioned I'm in town almost every week right now for construction. I'm actually in the process of relocating back to Cleveland permanently for permanently indefinitely, you know, whatever that means. But, uh, at least for a few years. So uh, I'm actually packing up. I've spent seven years here in Chicago. I'm going to come home, finish the project out. And we're actually starting another business that we're launching right there in, in the city, which I can talk about soon. Not quite yet, but... Uh, <laughs> we'll it, have you come will, back. We'll have you come back. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm excited about it. And it, it directly pertains to some of the stuff I was just mentioning. So I'll clue you in. You know, but you know, my mom still lives in, in the east side of Cleveland. My brother's there. There's just, there's so much to it. Like there's, there's just a quaintness to Cleveland in general that I think is, is hard to, to capture. And obviously the sports culture is one of a kind. 
So, you know, for me coming back after living in Chicago for seven years, which is like this huge cosmopolitan, you know, massive place with just about anything you could ever want. Well, Cleveland has a lot of the same things, maybe on a smaller scale, but you know, world-class orchestra and amazing research facilities and, and institutions and great sports and awesome outdoor spaces that are only getting better as, as entities like the Metro Parks and, and other, you know, community development organizations put, put more effort into creating connected neighborhoods and stuff like that. So again, I'm being long-winded and I'm kind of dodging your question about, you know, specifically what types of places <laughs> are my favorite, but it's home. It's, it's where I grew up and I'm excited to, to where it's going. So we will see. Yeah, we're excited to, to have you back. Well, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on, Dan, and, and sharing your story and, and everything that's going on with Intro. I, I personally am stoked about everything that you guys are working on and, and really uh, have enjoyed just on my runs every day, just seeing how, it, how fast this thing has come up. And I'm, it sounds like it's going to be going even faster. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really coming along. I'm excited. I really think it's going to be a game changer. You know, I think the dynamic street level stuff we're doing, the park space we're creating, it's, it's all thoughtful, purposeful, community oriented. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I mean, I, I hate to use that boring word. Excitement is just kind of like a, a lame, boring, loud word, but it's true. I mean, there, there's just so much cool stuff going on and I'm proud and happy and grateful to be a part of it all. Well, if, uh, if people have anything they want to follow up with you about, um, learn more about intro, you mentioned intro cleveland.com. Is there any other place people should be reaching out? You know, for now, that's the way you'll start to see opportunities to, um, to check in on apartment availability, probably late summer of this year, six or seven months before we start occupying apartments. We're going to start marketing the event space here shortly. And that'll be the first thing that we kind of put out there to the public eye. And uh, we'll set up a little booking space and office there on 25th Street, where Wild Cactus used to be is what it appears uh, we're going to be utilizing. So uh, that'll be happening in the next 30 to 45 days. And from there, we'll just continue to uh, to unveil marketing um, and, and imagery and unit types and all that kind of stuff as, as uh, things go on. Awesome. Well, looking forward to it. And thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So shoot us an email at layoftheland at upside.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland, at thetagan, or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please email us or find us on Twitter and let us know. And if you love our show, please leave a review on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us spread the word and continue to help bring high quality guests to the show. Taken Horton and Jeffrey Stern developed the Lay of the Land podcast in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Founders Get Funds and its affiliates or Actual and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.